Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Bodek. I'm here with John Brooke. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. I'm very glad to have you here. I came across your book because I'm very interested in how our on sustainability and our culture does not embrace it. And we're, you know, if I say to someone about polluting less, they're very quick to say, well, you want to return to the Stone Age? And so there was Dawn of Everything and some anthropology stuff that I looked at that started pointing me toward the, the only alternative to how we live now is not one thing, the Stone Age or some Mad Max dystopia. And so I started looking more and more into how we became the way we are. And I came across your book, you keep calling it a rough journey, but climate change and the course of global history, a rough journey. And it is, all right, the, the opening sentence of the introduction I have in front of me says, this book is a venture into a history on a grand scale, a contribution to what is coming to be known variously as big history, deep history, and evolutionary history. And I begin with a foundational question. How has the, the history of the earth system shaped the history of human condition? And it's exactly what I've been looking for. So it's, I'm really interested in how we went from our condition in the Pleistocene to our condition in the Holocene to our condition of modern states, I guess. Well, and, and now, okay, I don't think we'll get a chance to talk in this conversation, but then you're also a historian of pre-Civil War United States and abolitionism is very important to me. So I hope we get to enough, maybe it's one conversation, maybe two, but I wonder if you could tell me, tell us your background, your professor, uh, how you got into history and then deep history. What is big history or deep history? Because I didn't know these terms until I saw them. Maybe I've come across them. But I wonder if you could tell us how you got into that before we get into the subject. Well, I don't want to get into it. I, I mean, I was just I've been thinking about the um, about your question. And it does go back, yes, in uh, exposures as a kid to to archaeology, to history, to ecology. We took, I was taking a class in high school in spring um, of 70, and it was a, cl a class in ecology. The week, the end, no, in the earth, the first Earth Day spring. So it was, that was a, you know, that was a formative influence. I also worked in nature sanctuaries when I was in high school and stuff, and I was obsessed with doing history and reasonably conversant in, in, uh, um, Archaeology, just as an idea. But anyway, when I got to Cornell in uh, the spring of '71, I started within a year to essentially mediating between the. I more or less said, "I don't think I'm going to do. I'm going to do hard science." Did a little hard science. I said, "Okay," a little, a little. and but then I started working in toward a double major in history and anthropology slash archaeology, and I've been doing that pretty much ever since. Thinking in those terms, um, so I've been thinking about the the formative influence of McGraw Hall at Cornell and and the two departments who didn't speak to each other were the same buildings, <laughs> except the, mm -hmm. I was literally their uh, their medium between the two worlds. It just it became something that was obvious to me that that we should think about the natural world as a shaping context, not necessarily a determining context, but a shaping context for or the stage of history. Now, most of the time, as as in when I went to graduate school, people said, "We don't do that. We can't support you in that. You should be an American historian." I said, "Fine, I can I can do early American history." But it, at that time scale of you know decades to cent decades uh, years to decades, 
the history of nature doesn't necessarily matter that much, though um, within a five or six years, Bill Cronin had written his great book, Changes in the Land, which made it very obvious that, in fact, uh, an environmental history of uh, early New England, for example, was was doable and, had, and was being done. But basically, my basic approach to this book uh, uh, reemerged when I started teaching Tufts University's put out a call for people to do environmental studies. And I said, well, let's get back into this. And yeah. I started teaching. I said, well, I'll develop a course. And is it going to be a standard environmental history of the United States? And I said, that is boring. I'm not <laughs> interested. And, you know, that's it's part of something bigger. And by then, by then, we had plenty of pictures taken from space of the blue earth, the blue marble of the earth itself. And so I said, well, I want to teach a class that will be an earth history that will look at uh, the, the distant past in its relation to the, to the now. And essentially, taught that class many times, both at Tufts and Ohio State, and um, started, and my, I had an editor at, at Cambridge who I started talking to and saying, wow, I've got this new project, this course going, I bet it make a great book. And Frank Smith gave me the green light, and 2005, I started writing, and that's where I really started to learn. And that just as in the last four years, and I engaged in the rewrite of the book, which is which is titled now, first edition, Climate Change and the Course of Global History, Cold and a Rough Journey. That wasn't my title. That was their title. <laughs> they wanted, for some scanning reason, to put my obvious title at the end. And they weren't interested. Well, everybody in the field just calls it the rough journey. And that's what, and that's what the new edition will be titled. So if you're looking for it, it will be called rough the rough journey. journey. And that's the point, that that human history over the long term has been on a volatile planet, you know, and is a product of the, the volatility of the planet. And in great measure, the what are humans? You know, one of the innate, you know, the innate um, drives of men. Ultimately, one of the basic one is dealing with the pressures of nature. I mean, it goes. If you want to go deep into the Pleistocene, we have been dealing with the pressures of nature and getting better and better at it, to the point at which we became a threat to nature, which is the whole sustainability issue. Uh, how do we? How do we become a? How do we become an unsustainable force in the Earth system? I had so many things I want to ask. And okay, so I didn't realize that this began as a course first. So that means that, and, and when you said that, I thought, oh, that's why you had the rigor because when, you know, when I teach, that's mm -hmm. when I really start learning stuff. Although you said when you started writing, is it when you really started learning it? Did you know what you would find when you started it as a, I mean, because you said that it would be boring to just do like natural history of, of America, but mm -hmm. to do it on the timescales of hundreds of thousands of years. Well, actually, billions of years, if I go to the beginning of the book. <laughs> Did I know what I was going to find? No. I mean, in other words, when I started teaching in 93, 94, it was an exploration of, of nature and humanity through time, nature. And we did a little bit of geological history. We did a little bit of uh, human evolution. We did, but then we did, you know, we did the basics of agricultural revolution. And as I saw it then, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, and uh, human impacts on nature. And gradually, I began to realize, A, there was the other side of the story, 
the natural impacts on humanity over deep time. And actually, over the course of the 90s, climate change, which had become really very central, I wasn't really as aware of uh, as a central question. Yes, Jim Hansen had spoken to Congress in 1988, but there was such a range of of concerns and, and that were driving, well, what that I was exploring with the students that, that, that climate change evolved as a, a human impact on climate change. It became more and more clear by the late 90s. And conversely, what I really, really learned was a something somewhat surprised, which will get to the core of your question about sustainability, and I'll let you lead in there. Maybe you want to... Well, I'm most curious about humanity. What? All right, so we've talked about the Pleistocene and the Holocene, and there's a big shift in between there. And what was... I think that... I mean, the big picture is how did nature shape human development, cultural history, not just evolution in terms of pre-human homo, before we were homo sapiens, but as homo sapiens. And so I, I wonder if we could start with the what made the Pleistocene the Pleistocene? What made the Holocene the Holocene? What was the transition between them with the young dryad? Wait, dryad? Uh, yeah, dryad, right. And Well, we should realize, first of all, that the Pleistocene is something that Last for on the order of a million nine hundred thousand years, we're effectively if the impact of modern climate change had not occurred in the last you know fifty to one hundred fifty years, we would be on track for another ice age sometime in the in a, on a regular schedule. We probably are now out off of that, but the Holocene per se is a is essentially an interglacial. Right, an interglacial between major glacial periods during during the Pleistocene period, which is a an extreme period in a ice house period that has lasted for. In other words, there is a longer history to paleogeological history of Earth climates that go back four to five hundred million years and. An oscillation, very, very, very broadly speaking, between greenhouse conditions and ice house conditions. And we're in an, we are in theory in an ice house condition. So, with the oddity of our present circumstances, we are heating up the planet in the context of an interglacial that uh, is only ten thousand years uh, has only lasted for ten thousand years before which we were in one of five or six major glacial periods that are at the bottom of a long cooling that had been going on for 30, 40 million years ago, maybe pushing back to 60 million years ago. Last huge, the huge warm spike was an artificial thing called the heliothermal maximum that was almost, there's an eruption of gases that happened about 58 million years ago. And ever since then, we've been on a trajectory toward cooling that has been driven by plate tectonics. But now we're in this, the, the ice ages formally were effectively, uh, the Pleistocene formally was a period where the, um, has been a period where the orbit of the Earth and its shape has been able to drive, uh, interacting with, with uh, greenhouse gases and the Earth's system 
to drive major oscillations between warm periods, interglacials, and glacials. So we are in the Holocene, so-called, it shouldn't be called a scene because that makes it analogous to the Pleistocene. It's really not analogous. It's a it's actually interstadial, I think it's interstadial zero. And so our our frame of reference is that the um the ice ages ended ten thousand years ago and we emerged into the into the Holocene, into a warm period very rapidly in about a after a weird oscillation that we call the Younger Dryas, uh, where things reverted to cold for you know, about a thousand years, it then warmed up in about a hundred years. Wham! Into the early Holocene. That lasted for a very warm, warm period that lasted for about yeah, three or four thousand years, and then has been tracking toward cooling for the last five thousand years. So the weird thing is that we were. You know, we were on a, on a plane tracking toward progressive cooling, uh, and then this bizarre spike of what's happened in the last the last fifty to hundred years of the injection of greenhouse gases from human economies that has has if you look at the the climatic impact and the you know just the sheer scale of carbon in the atmosphere. The results of the changes are on the same scale as emerging out of the uh, the last uh, the last ice age. So, right, can, I, can I jump in with a few questions? Sure. Yeah, uh, I want to get some time scales here because uh, the I, Holocene has been going on for ten thousand years. Uh-huh. It was decreasing. Our temperature was somewhat decreasing on the scale of several thousand years. It, it this is within a Pleistocene of a couple of million years, several million well, years. Well, the Pleistocene proper is is nine hundred thousand years ago, uh, give or take. I mean, million or nine hundred thousand. Then we before the Pleistocene is the Pliocene, the Miocene, the Eocene. You know, if you just Google out, you'll get the the sequence of of uh, the, the the Cenozoic, uh, which takes you back to the you know to the big impact sixty five million years ago and the uh, the demise of the dinosaurs which is the boundary between the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic. So the whole Cenozoic, 65 million years, we'll just use that as a marker, is a period of cooling toward an ice house. The Pleistocene is the bottom of the ice house of which there are wild swings. The okay. Ice Age, what we call the Ice Ages, were several, and they were roughly every 100,000 years, and one of them ended about you know, 12 the ten thousand to twelve thousand years ago, and then your point, your point is, you know, the, where you're headed. I think is is agriculture suddenly erupted at the end of the the end uh, as the Holocene, well, the warming occurred. Well, I was getting to that, but now I'm kind of curious about one other thing, which is the sure, time yeah. scale of if we if absent human greenhouse effects, mm-hmm. then what would be the time scale for if we would. I mean, it's always speculative, but if the if the Holocene ended, were to take its natural course, yeah, right, yeah, would that be with on the scale of another few thousand years that we'd be back into? Well, what these the ice ages? If you look at the models, you look at the you look at the ice the 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 records, they tend to peak and then have a you know ten fifteen year the thousand year. Uh, gradual decline and then a more steep decline that takes another five thousand years. 
So yeah, I mean, basically, you know, if you look at that time scale, that framework, the entire interglacial would we would be a, a little more than halfway through it. It might start to accelerate. We might be at a point of, of acceleration toward a toward the bottom. And the way to measure the bottom, the most important numbers to keep in mind here are the fairly simple. And I must admit, I don't know the number right now. I was spacing on the, um, but I think we're talking about 410 parts per million. So what is carbon in the atmosphere? During the last 10,000 years, it has increased from about 270 to about 280 in that general range. And that's that's not from us. That's just from what it was doing on its own. That's just the standard. That's just, it was just a little bit. It, well, that's another question. We'll save that little question for, for a minute. But basically, the Holocene standard is about 280, 275, we'll say. The Ice Age standard was about 180. So if you went back 50,000 years ago, the carbon content of the atmosphere, about 180 parts per million, one of the arguments that is has gained traction in the last decade, two decades, is that carbon concentrations that low cannot predictably produce annual annual biomass. It's too low. So, in other words, in a sense, farming was impossible during the ice ages. So, you know. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Why did it happen before? But but basically, and, and so we think about the ice ages, the carbon content, the atmosphere is about 180 until, until you know, when I was a kid, it was about 130, 113, what, no, no, not 113, it's 315, 315, it arisen 25 points in about 100 years. And now we're, I, for some reason, I can't remember the exact number. But yeah, I think, it's over 400. It's... Yeah, 420 or so. Well, we use 420 as, as a a reasonably good benchmark. Yeah, sadly, people might be listening to this a few months from now when it might be 450. Yeah, well, we won't go we'll move that oh. fast. It moves about three or four, two or three points a year. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's moved massively. I mean, it's almost moved 100. We'll say it's moved 100 points since I was, since I was a child. When they first started measuring, 1958, they started measuring the at Mauna Loa. CO2 on an annual basis at Mauna Loa, and they have the annual cycles, and they have the trajectory, the secular trend upward. That uh, starts at around 315 and is now at least 100 higher in one lifetime. Just stunning. That is the scale. So if you had a jump from 315 to 415, it's the same scale of a jump as it was from the, the end of the last ice age to the warmth of policy. All right. So I wanted to get a feel for the timescales of, of things. So suddenly we're on this very fast trajectory. Eat it. And all right. So let's go back to the the Pleistocene. And now I should... Okay. So I should say not the beginning of the Holocene, but so much... I shouldn't think of the Holocene as like a new era, but a little... What would have been a blip. And oh, oh, we should also get to... Uh, the causes of all these changes are not human. It's the Earth's axis, the Earth's the the ellipse around right. the sun is changing, the angle of the, and so these are all natural things that are happening. And there, and there's a, a huge wealth of sources of this stuff that didn't exist several decades ago. So it's not like you're like guessing at these things. No, no. I mean, the, 
The idea of the orbital cycles was developed by Malankovitch, a uh, Yugoslavian uh, mathematician in the in the nineteen tens and twenties. So they, people, you know, have, have, they've had the model to be able to measure it very carefully, and now we can measure through seabed stratigraphy, ice core stratigraphy. I mean, the, the over the last fifty years, over the last really forty years, the Earth has been drilled. Uh, holes poked everywhere, and it's been read like the like the leaves of a book. It is a natural archive, and it goes into the deep, deep past. And so we can even do, uh, you know, during those greenhouse periods that I refer to, which you know are back, you know, at the end of the Mesozoic, uh, hundred thousand, hundred million years ago, uh, the CO two content in the atmosphere was about a thousand parts per billion, and so, and, and the early, the earliest greenhouses might have been up to 2,000 parts per million. And, and the shape of the earth was fundamentally different than it is now. We are adjusted to, a, we, we as a species have evolved in a, in a progressively cooler ice house earth, which in the last 100,000 years, uh, last million years, has gone through these wild cycles that have been formative to who we are. There's a new article out um, arguing that there's a major genetic bottleneck 900,000 years ago, which is and effectively an archaeological gap. There are very, very few uh, fossils from this period, and it's pretty clear there was a a a human bottleneck as the the true ice ages of the Pleistocene took hold 900,000 years ago. So that could be seen as as a real marker in the emergence of, of humanity. You talked about all the details or the the sources of of information. You said it goes way, way back. And also, can we give a preview, not to get into it yet, but there's also not just how far back, but the details of what we know about human society, that this, the information that we're getting, that it's like bewildering. And I know the word isn't bewildering, but amazing how much we can find out from little bits of evidence that... Decades ago, we probably would never have guessed it was even possible to get. Can you give us a hint of what what's to come of where this information is coming from? Well, this is coming from the very, very careful analysis of archaeological sites. So you, you have to archaeology in the biggest frame, and what which I mean is this: the, the Earth is ancient. People have been living on Earth for millions of years. There are layers and layers and layers of occupied surfaces that date back uh, millions of years. If you can get that, when you say millions of years, that would be to not just that's beyond Homo sapiens or pre-Homo sapiens, but Homo something. Yeah, right. Otherwise, you get, we can you know get and the, the record gets fuzzier the further back you get. But the more careful you are about extracting this information and using. Advanced chemistry and geochemistry um, on it. You can get it just amazing, amazing information. So, one of the things they're doing now is, is simply, you know, a lot of this, you know sites that have been, you know, that we don't know, we aren't sure, we don't have the money to actually excavate, but really can get an enormous amount of information out of core samples. So, I'll, I'll just, for example, what is about to explode in the next, it's already beginning to explode, is the reality that, <laughs> imagine a cave 
with deposits tens of feet thick, full of animal and human occupations. On a daily basis, we eliminate our bodies and put genetics into the ground. And they're beginning to realize that they can analyze uh, soil samples and begin to, you don't even need the bones. You can get genetics out of the ground. And these advanced genomic analyses are allowing, allowing them to do assays of just from a, you know, you have a profile of a site, you cut through a, uh, you drill a hole into it, you then carefully analyze each layer or every 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 inch and a half or so, and you can get a history of this site and extract an amazing amount of chemical and biological information, including genetic information. So that's sort of over the horizon. What's happening now are the, the revolutions of the last few years have been to be able to get genomics out of bone tissue. In other words, ancient bones, well-preserved, particularly teeth. You can extract not just who the people are, but what diseases they had. So one of the things that that has uh, been exploding since I wrote the first volume is the genomic analysis of the Black Death. Uh, of the plague, the bubonic plague in particular, which now has a history that it was absolutely not known, even speculated on before 20, uh, 2013. So, and there are questions, I just wrote my section on the Black Death and left it saying, well, we just don't know. There's lots of um, uh, lots of areas of the of the uh, of Eurasia, particularly China, of which we have no plague samples from bone tissue yet. And when we get those plague samples, we'll be able to put. We'll know a lot more about the history of the plague. But we have, we know a ton more now. Ten years. This is ten years ago. First major the major uh, mapping of of the bubonic plague of plague in general. Which actually has its roots in the in the late Neolithic and early Bronze Age, um, so that's that's a tiny sample. Yeah, it. I mean, is it? It's just to me, it was just unbelievable. I mean, once I looked, once I read your sources or where it all came from, I, I could imagine it. But I would never, if if I hadn't known that it had happened, I wouldn't have <laughs> guessed it. That the amount of detail and and you're talking about uh, one application, but it's also like trade routes and and who was in right, touch with whom right. and. and all right, so let's get back to the Pleistocene. Okay. Because this is, to me is, is all this is, for me, what's most interesting to me is how we went from, my understanding is that for a couple hundred thousand years, Homo sapiens existed as egalitarian hunter-gatherer mm -hmm. tribes. Now I know now there's a big there's state. So somewhere in between, there's a transition. And I used to think that humans figured something out that they'd never figured out before. But now I feel like it'd be something that could have happened, that the environment changed in ways that allowed something to flourish that just simply couldn't have before, but would have any time the environment had changed. Is that Well, that's the question. In other words, would why didn't agriculture emerge at the last in the so-called Eemian, which was the last major glaciation, or interglacial rather, which ended around 
around 150,000 years ago. Now, why was it? What was so special about about what happened? Uh, and part of that probably has to do with you know human concentration. I mean, it, uh, 150,000 years ago, humanity was maybe a population of 100,000 breeding population. There has been a great theory, a great debate, should I put it that way, a theory and a debate about it, about the Mount Toba eruption, which is 73,000 years ago. Theoretically, 10 years of volcanic winter and a huge bottleneck in in human uh, human existence, meaning a lot of people died and, and very few people survived. So, you know, one of the arguments for reason why there wasn't agriculture, you could argue that humans were human, were fully capable. They understood the world they lived in uh, better than we do, uh, but they didn't have any need for agriculture, nor did they perhaps have the population scale to kind of breed the 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 interaction. I mean, there, there's an argument that's been developed in the last, you know, about 25 years, which is that Populations under a certain number have, just don't have enough points of connection. And if you're so dispersed and you're so small, keep in mind these these Paleolithic bands were about 25 people, much bigger than that. And they tended to break apart. They needed hunting territories that were sizable on the order of 10 or 15 square miles. They didn't come. They didn't come in contact with each other that much, and they the we don't know enough about sort of great ritual gatherings. There probably were great ritual gatherings of hunter-gatherer peoples at various moments in the calendar, but that's impossible to actually do more than theorize about. But the reality is that there seems to be a connection between population density and technological change. And we can actually see this in the very distant past, that you, when you go back into the into the lower Paleolithic, the earliest Paleolithic, that when you have bursts of what seemed to be you know population expansions, you should also get more sophistication of the tools and, and sometimes relapse. That populations decline and the tools relapse uh, because they lose they lose the the uh, interconnectivity that drove the the specialization of uh, tool making. So it may be that in fact at the end of the Pleistocene, a variety of things happened. That in particular locations that popped the beginnings of agriculture, but those pops were long and slow, even in a few locations where it happened. Most importantly, it happened initially in both the Fertile Crescent and in the two parts of, of China, the Yangtze Valley and, and the Yellow River. Uh, and they have kind of different trajectories and different histories. The the, the Fertile Crescent trajectory is a probably faster than a little bit earlier. But here's a case where we do have evidence for social interaction. One, you could probably in about 150 generations produce annual generations of, uh, you know, if you put your mind to it and start working on it, you know, 150 years, you could go from raw, from grass, uh, undomesticated grasses, which is what they were exploiting, to, um, to fully domesticated. But it, it took a lot longer than that. So, wheat being one of these grasses, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, wheat, barley, yeah, oats, okay. the full panoply of that. Uh, so, the Levant was full of these dry grasses that were potential for domestication, but it took a lot longer than they expected. 
And it turns out there were these amazing sites in southern Turkey that were had really, it looked like they had annual, they were not in really highly productive locations. They're up on up in dry valleys. They've got a very elaborate monumental architecture, monumental, uh, and they look like pilgrimage sites. And so the- It was Gobekli Tepe? Yeah, yep, exactly. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. And they look like places where where people from you know, hundreds of miles around came together, exchanged, exchanged things, and uh, moved seeds around, moved animals around, engaged in, in uh, complicated ritual. And over the course of about you know, a thousand years, you know, that was the basis for, for the beginnings of agriculture. So it, it's a, a you know, in that particular location. Agriculture is going to develop in China on a much longer, more continuous pattern out of rice, or rather, our billet and sargum in North China and the beginnings of the earliest beginnings of rice horticulture, which took, took a long time, took thousands of years and may have been accelerated by very brief, you know, 100, 150 year climate reversals that happened in the course of the, um, the war policy. Things periodically got bad, and uh, that may give it a little pulp. Was the Indus one of these two, or was that later? The Indus is essentially, the Indus is a part of the Southwest Asian part of Fertile Crescent kind of sphere. In other words, it looks like, I mean, it's very clear that agriculture diffused from the Zagros Mountains, which was part of the Fertile Crescent, across Iran, across Balochistan and into the Indus Valley. So, and then, you know, the core of the wheat complex, the wheat cattle complex, not that, that you know, there would be local domestications uh, eventually, like the Zebu cattle, but it has its origins in a pretty clear migration, to, you know, or, or transfer of culture and you know, evolution of cultures across Iran from the Zagros. Okay, so the the stuff in Turkey that you were talking about was it's still pre agriculture. It's people with, I guess, if, as I understand, it was too low population density to for agriculture really to start. But somehow the population density was still increasing somewhat. Is that because of the climate? Well, yeah. I mean. The question is, there's something of a debate there. You could argue that populations grew in, the standard model would be that populations in the Levant and the Pearl Crescent are expanding based on the availability of these grass species and acorns in a context of, with certain very favorable sites and a lot of dry desert too. So you, you it, populations expanding didn't have a place to go. So they had to develop. There wasn't much migration opportunity. They would eventually migrate, but it was it was a kind of perhaps a a, a petri dish, a, uh, a kind of a forced a forced acceleration toward in a fairly contained environment, a circumscribed environment. Populations may be rising. Now, on the other hand. There's also the argument that in the context of major climatic shifts, we have to think of what happened as the earth warmed, sea levels rose, 
there's more rainfall, uh, a lot of estuary conditions, the old hunting-gathering traditions that had worked in the dry steppe environments no longer retained. People started settling into uh, warm, wet environments and started getting sick. And they kind of got trapped in warmer, wetter. Looks like a good place to live. We're next to this marsh. Well, there's always the, the argument, there's always the distinct possibility that as they settled into these higher productivity locations and stopped moving, things got dirtier. And what is striking is that the the and the people got sicker. The, the I mean, if you're if you're a hunter gatherer society, you can leave a messy a messy campsite behind, keep on moving, and you don't have any public health issues in that sense. But if you settle down, the trash accumulates around you along with a lot of germs. And these early Natufian, the earliest settled in pre agricultural societies in the Levant are called Natufian, and one of the one of the classic arguments about them is they were really kind of messy. <laughs> they just left everything all around. <laughs> and they're piles of murderbacks and junk. And you can imagine what has, has decomposed. And the, the ensuing pre-pottery, Neolithic B, almost city-like structures, Chatelhoy would be the most famous one, they kept these places swept clean. They learned something about, about living in one place pretty quickly. And it's a possibility that the earlier populations were actually getting sicker, staying in one place, drawn in, and then losing the skills that they had for uh, major movement and being kind of trapped and being kind of forced into agriculture. So there's it's either population growth or the possibility that that and thus pressures for for more production, or there's possibility that. There actually was a little, not necessarily that much population growth, but there was the, the health circumstances were such that that it was imperative to get as much as you could out of the landscape. Am I right that all of this is driven by the climate change? That it couldn't have happened a couple centuries before? Yeah, there's no question that. I, I well, it's always a question, but the dominant argument is that without enough CO2 in the atmosphere, you wouldn't have enough productive, predictable plant growth. Because you, if you're going to make a whole deal here is you got to feed yourself. And we, if we have to, we get in the car, go to the pizza place and order pizza <laughs> or we order in. We The food quest is not an issue. But, you know, when you're, you're living, you know, for millions of years, living, living outside, and living from your wits, you knew a lot about the landscape. And so there, the problem for hunter-gatherers was, where will the predictable biomass be on an annual basis? And you have to move around to find it. To make the jump to staying in one place, you're going to use up. I mean, this is your point about sustainability. It was unsustainable to stay in one place, particularly if populations were growing. And the likelihood is they they probably were there probably were increasing numbers of you know younger people uh, surviving. So what do you have to do? You have to get more out of the landscape than you than you did before, and you have to learn how to use things that you wouldn't want to use. You know you wouldn't have dreamed as a Pleistocene hunter gatherer, you wouldn't 
Well, actually, that's not quite true. They start, you start getting grinding stones about 30,000 years ago. They start to get grindstones that they've always assumed were actually Neolithic agricultural, a marker of the Neolithic. And you find these grindstones in Paleolithic sites 30,000 years ago. They're already starting to process processed food in the high labor category. In other words, you can either gamble on on the big kill and gorging on a, on a mammoth, <laughs> or you can go down the food scale and be, you know, eating smaller animals. And, and then the process, the, the reality that you are also always grazing on the landscape, at the bottom of that landscape are, is, are grasses that we take totally for granted. It's in the bread, it's in the cereal, it's in the pizza. But that's just grass, grass seeds. And that the dependence on grass seed is what really marks the Neolithic. But, because you domesticate it, but it's already there. You can see it in, in many of the Paleolithic sites. You can start to see these grinding inputs. The only one thing they would be grinding would be uh, possibly pigment, but certainly seeds. So to cycle back, you're changing your food choice and you're specializing. Why did I specialize in these seed-bearing plants? Because they knew from experience that these seed-bearing plants produced on a regular basis. They were predictable. Let's figure out a way to make them more predictable and then bring them into, in other words, cultivate them a bit. And then gradually, 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 not really thinking about doing it, you move them closer and closer to your site, you domesticate them. So then it's not like someone said, let's figure out how to make a farm. It's they were do like they were growing these things. They realized at various times they became more necessary. There's no they I mean it's they're like this is more and more predictable. And so they start relying right. on it more and more. Yeah. And then then population increases, they rely on it more. Right. And as the population density increases and the knowledge increases then you, you said you have a certain population density for technology to develop, but technology doesn't just mean inventing physical objects. It's also like figuring out how to yeah. to do agriculture. It's practice. Practice. In other words, it's all the, I mean, I use that I use it as a shorthand for what we might also talk about as as culture. But it's but certainly, yeah, the practice of agriculture is something that has to be learned and has to be maintained through generations. And and has to gradually improve to, you know, become more productive to need larger, larger numbers of people. Now, I want to share a big thesis of mine, and see if it's too big of a jump or how this sounds to you. <laughs> you mentioned that these areas where agriculture developed, there was the climate and the the rivers and the plants and the animals. And also, it was surrounded, it was circumscribed, around it, there wasn't an alternative. And so I have this working definition of how a dominance hierarchy forms. I'm not sure if I'm jumping too far ahead, but it's, it's when someone can control a resource that's necessary and there's no alternative to it. And I'm picturing that as long as it's hunter-gatherer, then the resources you need are are well enough distributed that if I try to enforce, if I tell you what to do, you can just walk away. Yeah, all right. Yeah. But once, if you start forming 
agriculture and you have food surpluses and farms that push out the space to hunt and gather enough that if I have the surplus of food and I can control it and you can't go and get something elsewhere, then I can start forming, I can start, I can exert dominance over you. And so that inadvertently, we got more stability with these grasses. Mm -hmm. We got more population density. But inadvertently, we also created the conditions for a hierarchy, a dominance hierarchy in which one group could protect. And I guess also that if I have a surplus and someone over there has a surplus, like someone might try to take my surplus. So we have to protect it. Even if I don't want to form a dominance hierarchy, I have to. And right. so it feels to me like this inadvertently led to a structure that, oh, and where where one group can have authority over another or have a connection with power over another by by being able to control this resource. Yeah. And if I start lording over you, if I lose control of that resource and I've been, and you feel like you've been oppressed, now I'm in danger. So I it also mandates or it gives me a strategy of wanting to maintain that dominance. Right. And since it's unsustainable, that forces me to both maintain my position and to expand into new territory. Is that does that all fit together, or if I made too many big? It's not. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's not implausible at all. And, and there's one cap, one point of interest here, which is Raver and Wengro, David Raver and David Wengro, the dawn of everything. An important book came out about a year and a half, two years ago. They argue that there are hierarchies in the in among Paleolithic, some Paleolithic and Mesolithic, you know, settled hunter gatherers. And their point is that they particularly developed in places where resources were focused. So, for example, in the the American Northwest, in in the uh, Native American societies, where it became very, very hierarchical and structured around the salmon runs. Who controlled the salmon runs, which were the high high net primary productivity food sources, and there were extremes of you know family power and slavery in these Northwest Coast societies, they were not agricultural. They were just, it was just exactly your thesis about about uh, resource concentration. So the other way to look at this, the way to look at it, and I think it works, it's almost become a, something of a law, <laughs> but which is round structures, equalitarian societies. Oh, yeah. Sorry. This is so fascinating when I read this in your book. Where structures, hierarchical societies, and property. So the way to look at this is there's this famous site called Chatahoyak in southern Turkey, which is a little bit of an oddity, but not probably not. But it's famous site that's been tell that has been excavated very carefully, and they have found that there are effectively it you can you can see the world in transition. These are like apartment structured. There's like a like a giant beehive, and every household had their own apartment, a vertical house inside of this, you know, party wall agglomeration of structures. And you entered through the roof. You there were at least two or three floors, but they featured the two. They've been able to do this analysis by pollen samples and by by uh, seed analysis and uh, chemistry of the soil. They had. Halls where there were interior burials, 
particularly of infants, where they had niches in the walls where the skulls of the ancestors were placed. And they had these elaborate horned, they took auroch horns, you know, early cattle, and modeled their faces, you know, projecting from the walls, this hunting. So this symbolism of the of the hunt in this hall, in this hall, public hall where other people would be admitted to. And then down back hallways, which they can get from the archaeological, you know, when they when they excavate sites, they can see, oh, this would have this was a difficult place to find. Down the back hallways were rooms with, uh, there were storerooms with bins of grain. But, you know, no one was let back. That was hidden. So they had a public presentation of the ancient hunting ritual, and they had a private, secured grain storage. They're in transition toward what was going to emerge. I mean, basically, on the one hand, I mean, it's it's pretty much true that I mean, it's, it's true. We shouldn't use that term, but it's pretty much accepted that the Paleolithic societies were relatively equalitarian and that, for the most part, they shared resources. Well, how are you going to, if you have a situation where, what this is where the detail of, of comes into play, but you have to you have, a, you have to keep in mind that that the warm Holocene wasn't always warm. You know there were there were climatic reversals, there were bad years, there were droughts, there were things happened. Uh, how do you get through the bad years? You have to have a storage. You have to have storage. Uh, effectively, the the essence of the emergence of agriculture and the emergence of modern society is the ability to store biomass through time. So what do you do? You store, you, you have storage and you have to protect it. So this gets back to your, back to your basic framework of full power and hierarchy. What is the, how did this, how is this arranged on the landscape before you had states? Well, you had, you had almost clan-like structures in which villages, but inside of those particular households were becoming more and more important in and were becoming, you know, the, they were monopolizing the labor inside their household. They were not sharing across household boundaries and they were secretly storing biomass for the bad years. What happened to the households that could make it? They disappeared. And the survivors ended up as subordinate laborers, we call them slaves, in other households. So you could have a situation in the context of a, you can almost do a, almost do a game theory modeling of this. How long would it take to go from a, a egalitarian hunter-gatherer society to once you introduce agriculture and the need to predict from year to year and the need to have stuff? Very simple agricultural tools that are property to produce this stuff. And then you have to have fields, are they private or not? Um, but very, you know, over, over, uh, you could go, your model might go through, you know, 50 or 100 cycles. And suddenly by the end of it, you would have, and you included that drought years and good years, you would end up with a stratified society in which certain households become wealthier and more dominant. Where do those households eventually go? 
they, in both the Chinese context and the, the Fertile Crescent context, those households emerge as sort of priestly hierarchies. The high, and for out of that will come the state. What is the, you know, the essential metaphor of the leader of a state? Well, what are kings? Kings are dominant households. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned a few things that make it happen. Oh, by the way, I have to mention that when I read that thing in your book yeah. of square versus round, I had to, like, there's no way I could read the next sentence until I, like, pushed the chair back, thought about it, thought about the ramifications uh -huh. of, of why you'd have one versus another, then in the past leading up to it, and then what that would lead to of learning geometry and later uh, accounting and Oh, man. And there are a few places in your book where it was just like, whoa. <laughs> and I guess you didn't make it up, but you know, that's where I came across it. And it, it all fit. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had to comment on that. And in the Pacific Northwest, Graber and Wengro talk about how they, I think that's one of the places they talked about switching. Like it would be one way part of the year and another way another part of the year. And they said that that was a sign of people. They, I, I think they described it as like playful. But I understood that the, or I later came to understand that the fish were plentiful part of the year and not plentiful other parts of the year. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's during the, the seasonal the seasonal uh, runs. So that when the when the fish aren't there, you have to, have, I guess, salted or dried fish, mm -hmm. and that's going to be a resource that has to be protected. And also, when you're talking about, ch I don't know how to say it right, chattelhoik. Yeah, that's that, right. Yeah. If they, or any of these places that when they had a surplus. You mentioned a few things of leading to the stratification. One you didn't mention, but I think was implied, but I want to make sure, was you have to protect these surpluses because someone could take them if you don't protect them. And that's going to develop... Well, it's going to develop household power, but it also, I mean, year to year, century to century, the practical way to protect them is to develop essentially household alliances. So the, the, the understanding for... Chattanooga and these pre-state village communities is there are there are councils of elders and then there are secret societies that are held together by bonds of probably kinship or fictional kinship but uh, and real kinship but also you know that are cross-cutting to some degree so there's all likelihood and this gets us into into modern anthropological analogies from the last century all sorts of cross-cutting alliances that, you know, some of their kinship, some of them are essentially brotherhood and sisterhood that cut across in different ways that enhance your security through time. But we lost that. We don't do that anymore. One of the features of modern society is, at best, the maintenance of the extended family, but in the United States, that's very, very thin. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, we, we, we don't have as much uh, of the binding force of these Cross-cutting alliances that would have been the case in these in these uh, ancient villages. I'm being hyper simplified. A political party is a cross-cutting social. So I'm seeing you, you described the the alliances formed between households. That feels to me sort of like a technology too, because it's like on the way getting toward contracts and and treaties. And a political structure. At the same time, I would guess that they're also going to create weapons. Mm -hmm. I mean, something to defend themselves or to attack the others. 
Like you're going to create a culture of protection and right. Well, that therein lies the you know it, we have to keep in mind that we are talking about constant endless below grade rating. I mean that you know there's something to be said for the state. The state provides a modicum of security to persons and property and keeps us out of the. I mean the the evidence, the biological evidence for violence. It is obvious that there's a huge amount of interpersonal violence. There is new stuff emerging about horrific, you know, whole villages being slaughtered and just jumbles of bodies being un- being excavated in uh, sites in, in Eastern Europe from the linear Bon Karamic Neolithic uh, societies emerging. So, you know, the reality is that, yes, you, you have to you have to protect your stuff and your people. So you are going to have those those village societies that will be able to generate enough young men to to protect the to protect the village in time of need, and then that you know that does turn into armies eventually. So until recently, oh, one last thing. So the Pacific Northwest, if they're switching back and forth between egalitarian versus dominance hierarchy. That would make sense if they're if it's dominance hierarchy when they're eating the stored fish, and egalitarian when the fish are plentiful. Well, when the no, when the fish are plentiful, there are certain families. I mean, if that's the guts of it, is that certain families controlled the fish runs, and so there were you know extreme hierarchies. I I had missed that. I don't want to get into Wengro and uh, Graver Wengro right now of the detail. I read it about a year and a half ago, but I I didn't get the picture of alteration. I got a picture of variation. That places that had good fish runs became very hierarchical. They maintained that through you know the fish runs and the the intervals by control over resources. And then there were places that maybe fairly nearby that didn't have any fish runs intended toward oh yeah intended toward yeah so they were contrasted they were saying yeah yeah I don't want to get into yeah okay let's put that off to the side (laughs) back to the the, the, okay there's a piece that fell into place for me recently which I alluded to before which is that once we had these surpluses and the rating that it wasn't I what I thought was that people kind of learned more technology and learned to create a bigger state over time. But now I think that it was, they had to, like they, the people at the top of the hierarchy were at risk if they didn't protect it. And therefore, and because it was unsustainable, they, they were forced to essentially to, to expand and protect what they had and expand into more because they weren't living sustainably. They were and if you have a surplus in food, that doesn't mean you have a surplus in everything else. So if you expand the number of people to meet the amount of food you have, but you also need, say, you timber, then you're going to need timber from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm thinking, what I'm concluding, and is that I'll use a word that's maybe jumping too far ahead, but it feels like they have to move into imperialism. Uh-huh. Well, whether they did or not, they did. In other words, one would would like to to assume there could have been a more a more pleasant history, but there were pleasant. The history was unpleasant, and in fact, that's what happened. And what would you know? I don't want to get too monocausal about this, but we do have to keep in mind that 
capital T technology mattered and artists, you know, skilled craftsmen who have been making pottery and higher, higher kiln temperatures and are constantly fiddling with bits of stone and, and have all sorts of, you know, ritual and, and religious beliefs about that stone, but gosh, my God, this stone melts. And if you add this to it and that to it, and ooh, look what you can make. And so over the course of the, you know, the, the fourth millennium BC, copper and then bronze metallurgy. And once you have bronze metallurgy, the it's very clear that becomes a major vehicle for hierarchy and power. The introduction of is a quantum leap. It's like the atomic bomb. The there were probably there were the I think it's undoubtable there there were tendency toward hierarchy and dominance in Stone Age societies. Yelizic, Yelizic, but you didn't have the didn't have the uh, I didn't have the power projection for uh, that that metal tools, metal weapons uh, provided, and and it was expensive. So, what one thing that is striking to me is that in the so-called Bronze Age, there really weren't very many bronze tools for the ordinary person to conduct their their work. It might maybe some artisans had bronze tools, but really, bronze, bronze was weaponry. And the making of bronze was monopolized by the great households that were becoming monarchical. So there is a connection between the arms race, the technology of the arms race, and the rise of. And then once you once you have, you know, what you really the driver, you know, food is not really the big problem. Food is, you're not going to move food for hundreds of miles, but you are going to move. Small quantities of very dense materials might take pack animals to move it, but high-value, dense materials. So the tin and the copper that were going to make the bronze had to come from hundreds of miles away. And the lapis lazuli and the other, you know, jewels that were going to go into the into, – and the other luxury products. So what what really empire involved – and, and then the, you know, then the – the need for timber and the the great mystery, which is textiles, we have to understand how incredibly important textiles were to these societies, and we just don't know barely anything. Why why were they so important? Well, because there's evidence for for the fact that they were workshops of producing textiles in vast quantities, and everybody had to have textiles. <laughs> is it for clothing as opposed to wearing leather? Oh, yeah, clothing, and then layers and layers of sumptuary. And once you start, you know, getting that, getting the um, the urge for being better, you have a driver that that continues to the present of unsustainable competitive consumption, and a lot of the imperial reach was for things that really didn't matter. If we run the run the tape all the way forward to the early modern empires of you know the seaborne empires of Spanish, the French, the British, the Portuguese, what were they moving? Yeah, like sugar and tea and tobacco. Yeah, these are drugs. Yeah. These are, you know sugar, tea, tobacco, you know gold and silver, fine. But still, we're not talking about food. 
Food did not become a matter of international transport until the middle of the 19th century. Great book by Chris Otter on that, my, my colleague Chris Otter, Food for a Small Planet, Diet for a Small Planet, Diet for a Large Planet. Mike. Well, Diet for a Small Planet is Francis Morlepay. Right, but he made, play, he made a play on that. He played a play on that. But Christopher, okay. Chris Otter, and it's all about the, once you have refrigeration, once you have railroads, you can start moving food and steamships. You can start moving food in large quantities and food starts to matter in terms of international relations. Before that, it's all luxury crops. Luxury crops and luxury items that's driving him. Pepper and, yeah. and spices. Yeah, right. So, right. So now you're giving this view of human history on a thousand-year timescale or 10,000-year timescale with the view of the environment influencing us. The paper that led me to your book and your book also referenced, I forget the exact title, but it was something like, was agriculture impossible oh, right. in yeah. the Pleistocene yeah. and mandatory in the Holocene? Which is, well, I, you, that was written by Richardson and Boyd in the uh, late 90s. I They couldn't have led, I hadn't written my book yet. <laughs> so they must, mm -hmm. yeah, I must, have led, I must have led you to them because they- well, historically, I mean, I found their paper and then that led me to you. I see. Okay. Yeah. And it feels to me, they they didn't answer, answer the question. And reading yours, it feels like it might have only been uh, 10 or 20 years earlier, but it feels like a lifetime earlier in terms of the the tools available to anthropologists yeah. and, ar and archaeologists. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so it was a whole other... But it feels to me, like what you're, from what you're saying now, that a lot of these changes, that it was... Not maybe mandatory, but maybe inevitable that each step led to the next that leads to our modern world with all these drugs and textiles being flown and shipped around that it's the material conditions led to all of these things combined with, as you said, game theory, or I would say like the strat the competitive strategy that mandates if you're at the top of a hierarchy, you have to keep doing these things. And then periodically they discover, as you said, you know, oh, this this thing melts, and oh, and when it combines with that, you get what we would call bronze. Mm -hmm. And all these, there's a lot of people now who are tempted to say humans are ingenious, and we come up with these things, and they just look for just the human right. stuff, and then then we miss these that they weren't trying to create culture and art. Mm -hmm. That was the byproduct of agriculture or environmental changing material conditions combined with these lucky things. Like you can form bronze, you can burn coal. Well, yes and no. I mean, I would, you know, we got to be a little bit careful about pushing the environmental thesis too far. I like to talk about it as a context and because there is something pretty magical about the human mind. It is the wild card. That uh, you know, we do separate. We do. I mean, one of the features here is is that humanity, human beings, have been progressively doing very complicated things that cannot be explained by the natural world precisely. Now, at its very beginning, they were struggling and losing most of the time, and that's you know one of the one of the the dramas that I find is the I just finished. The Middle Ages, and 
it's a constant process of struggle against natural forces. I mean, the uh, the incipient the, the dark ages really were climatically dark ages, and there were there was plague in the early dark ages, and there was the Black Death did happen, and you know there was amazing human creativity, but it hadn't been channeled the way it would start to be channeled in the 17th and 18th century toward toward science. And you know, so science really does matter. Once you start to to spend a little less time worrying about the divine and a little more time worrying about how to solve problems and count things, then things start to accelerate. Now, at the same time, it sure helps to have a major energy source underneath your feet. And so, without coal, the whole story would have been, you know, fundamentally different. Without fossil fuels, we would not be getting to where we are now. You know, uh, we're trying to get away from a fossil fuel-dependent economy, but the reality is, you know, the the transformations of the last two or three hundred years have been, you know, have been rooted in the fact that we suddenly had this supply, massive supply of relatively cheap, high-density fuel that dramatically expanded the, you know, the 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 capacity of humans to do things. And, you know, so, so there really is, you know, all the way through this is always this question of what exactly happened to make this change? What exactly happened to make the agricultural revolution happen? What exactly happened to make the industrial revolution happen? Some of it in the in the context of, you know, the, the uh, we can talk about that. You go back to the, the Pleistocene-Holocene transition. Clearly, there's it's almost as if, they, if you look at it at the big enough scale, you know it, it is inevitable. Something is is they have the capacities; they just need the context to be provided. Exactly how we made the transition out of the organic to the fossil fuel driven uh, modern economy is you know really it is a matter for, for intellectual history, cultural history are very 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 important. At the same time, there is an environmental context which is. I mean, it's not insignificant that the problems that were being solved in the early Industrial Revolution had to do with warmth, more clothes, more stuff to burn, better houses. It was cold. It was a little ice age. That has a little something to do with it. Or uh, and, and then to have the motive power that the that that coal provided was not insignificant. But there's. You know, there there's a dynamic that spins out of the I would I would in the context of this conversation I would put it the dominance hierarchy framework. How do I get ahead faster than somebody else that is and keep the roof over my head for longer and, and keep a better roof over my head? That drive is <laughs> exploits the human capacity, the intellectual capacity framework, which you know separates us from our near near cousins, the uh, you know, the great apes, uh, the the uh, chimpanzee and gorilla, who are genetically microscopically different from us, but no, capacity wise, not quite there. Well, a big piece to me is the inevitability of it. Is that once the surpluses existed, it was inevitable that we were going to have these hierarchies, these dominance hierarchies that would expand and not let go or it would it would 
allow those dominant hierarchies to persist longer and to take on larger scale. I do think at the end that the graver white growth framework of, ah, there had been hierarchies before, and there's something to that. Well, they were saying it was like playful, that people would try it this way, try it that way, but I, I think that- Yeah, right. Yeah. It may be playful because they can't actually maintain them for very long. <laughs> yeah, which makes them not playful. Yeah. I think that it's. I think that they weren't playful. It was that the conditions would change and they would change with it. So we're, we're well over an hour. I, I would love <laughs> to keep going. Are you, I mean, can I ask you a couple more questions? Sure. I did. I was, uh, I promised a student I'd be on a Zoom with him, but it's probably over now. So we'll just, sure, go ahead, fire away. All right. You, you said earlier how the hunter-gatherers, the egalitarian hunter-gatherers probably had a lot more knowledge of nature than, than we do or people after. I, and I came across a quote somewhere that I cannot find that said the drop in knowledge from hunter-gatherer to agriculture of nature, of, of the world around them is like precipitous. And then to go from agricultural to us, and, like I walk out, I don't know what trees are around. I don't know how they, what birds and fungi interact with this particular tree or whatever, but I feel like they knew all of that stuff or rather that their knowledge of, of their local environment right. and, and the patterns was much greater. Do I remember that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's true. And, and uh, because people are go to go to the Amazon and, and talk to the old people and the old people know that hundreds and hundreds of different species of plants. So they have their own names for them. They know their medical per- properties. So we have to imagine that, you know, I, I, my dog is constantly out there literally examining the landscape with her mouth and her nose. Well, that's where we came from. We started, ex- we were, we were as primates. We were examining the, we we're living in and surviving by doing it better than the next person, the next animal. And yeah, yeah. so, so once that becomes intellectualized or, uh, you know, I, I transfer this knowledge to my, to my uh, offspring, it becomes culture. Well, they knew a ton, they knew an enormous amount, and that once you specialize into a into a particular, you know, once you settle into a particular place, and you say, "All right, I'm going to focus on this particular plant or this 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 collection of plants and animals," it's probably four or five generations, and enormous amounts of knowledge is is lost, just as it is from as we move from farm to city. And I think that you were jumping ahead to the Enlightenment. And what I think of, so now I think of like, I don't know if you've read Steven Pinker with Enlightenment Now and The Better Angel, Angels of Our Nature. I have read but, parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He talks about, or not just him, but there was a flourishing of ideals of reason and science and things like that. And I think a lot of people think there was a renaissance before that, that it was restoring things from uh, classical Roman Greece. Now, Wengro and, and Graver say that, well, they also discovered egalitarian groups in North America. So uh, that, so a lot of the values right. were, I, I think it, I thought of growing up, I thought the enlightenment was a creation of values that hadn't been there before, partly restored from classical, from antiquity. But now I'm thinking that it was more of a restoration of egalitarian, a lot of values that were 
from law from before agriculture. Well, in that case of that argument about the which is an interesting angle, you know, essentially a, a you know one of the artists modern democratic theory that uh, that early French. Uh, uh, accounts of Native American societies informed uh, political theory in France that then trickled into the into the. So I mean, that's an interesting angle. The I mean the other side of this is I mean I'll, another side of the Renaissance a guy named um, Samuel Cohn has a famous a famous argument that by the end of the Black Death and as we're going into the Renaissance, the doctors were saying we have abandoned the ancients. We are empiricists. We have met the enemy and the, the Black Death. We have tamed it. And we've done that by our own observational reason. So I always take that, that little, little story of the doctors who have thrown away the advice of, that comes down in the ancient books and have operated on the basis of their observation of what works and what doesn't work as really the, the hinge to the maybe that's a hinge back because that's certainly how people people would have lived their lives in in uh, Paleolithic antiquity uh, but it's also you know a hinge forward to the scientific method what I'm thinking what feels like it's coming into place for me is that through things like that we restored and discovery of, of cultures that we're still living with more democracy. I mean, in Europe at the time, how you're born, that's that was your status in life. And as they restored values that worked for pre-agriculture, there was one big difference that they just discovered. So in Europe, they just discovered what appeared to them as two empty continents, infinite amount of land, and with the coal, infinite amounts of energy. Exactly. So there was a value that they did not restore because you wouldn't need to, which would be stewardship. And so I feel like we got, we had lived sustainably for some time in the past. And then we started living unsustainably and that led to these empires. And that led to everything, a lot of our history. And then we got out of it in a way, in an enlightenment that was beneficial in many ways, but it left something out. It was appropriate for the conditions of the time, thinking there's infinite land, arable land, and infinite energy, coal, and later other fossil fuels. So they didn't, they didn't need stewardship, but we live in different conditions now that we, it's not infinite. It never was, but it was to a good approximation at the time. And now it's, it's very finite. And to me, a solution to our situation is to restore stewardship. Well, the question is whether I had to be to pierce romantic bubbles. I'm not sure anybody ever really was good stewards of the land. I'm sure I'll get a lot of hate mail for this, but but you know the reality is that in, in some contexts there would be ideologies of, of maintaining some balance. But you know the the stewardship framework is whether it's restored or not. It's something we we have to do ourselves. We we understand really for the. I mean, this is why that moonshot picture is very important. I think in '69 it would have been a a an edge of the earth, and then by '72 we were looking at the whole earth. Uh, that had a had a north, as in thus the whole earth became the 
was printed on the whole Earth catalog. It went into commerce. <laughs> uh, sorry for that little riff there. But you know, it wasn't until fairly recently that we had really come to terms with the scale of the planet and planetary realities. Now, obviously, the you know the environmental movement has its origins in you know go back to Thoreau and John Muir and the sense of the destruction of the bounties of the, in particularly of the the North American landscape where where you go back to your point about about limitless resources I mean this is what America was built on the sense that you could take this land and extract a living from it to the ends of time and the environmental movement has moved from conserving those landscapes to concerns about the to an understanding of the you know the dynamics of how the Earth ecologies operate, the Earth system operates, and, and the, the interpenetration, the, the deep and rapid penetration of, of of human industrial power into that landscape, into the Earth system. I mean, the the thing that really got me about about twenty five years ago was endocrine disruptors that they were able to track endocrine disruptors from plastics. In bioconcentrating in the Arctic, and when you realize that, and having you know, affecting Arctic biology, you realize how you know how incredibly interconnected everything is. But that's a very recent understanding, and it may be that we're restoring stewardship. I like I like to have that romantic view of the past. I'm not totally sure it's real of. <laughs> well, when you say it wasn't there, are you talking about? Because when I think of the Hadza or the Sun or egalitarian hunter gatherers. I've asked a few people, I've had guests who have lived among them, uh, the Hadza, the San, the Kogi, the Tamane, the Matses, and I asked them, do they have a sense of, like, leave it better than you found it, or don't take the last one, leave something for nature? And they say, they, they say they can't really answer because they don't say things like that, but it's more like they can't, they wouldn't behave any differently. It's like, they, yeah, like nature is a part of them, they wouldn't, so I, it might not be stewardship, but I feel like my understanding, and I'm not an expert in this at all, is that for most of human history, they knew not to wreck things. They knew not to make it unsustainable. Well, the other way of looking at it, I hate to be, I mean, I, I take kind of a demographic point of view, which is the land was so big and we are so few. Right, for a human history, so even if they didn't want a steward, they couldn't help it because there was they're never going to make a dent in it. Is really the reality. There was never going to be. They might make a dead here. Well, then you just pick up and go someplace else. And even then, though, couldn't wouldn't they still have grown? I mean, they could have grown in population, but they didn't. It stayed below a certain level. Well, that's because people died. I mean, you got to keep in mind that the struggle to survive was the struggle to survive, and that doesn't mean you know killing each other. That means dying and not having enough children. And the children, the infant mortality at fifty percent. I mean, come on. The uh, just having a child for one was hard enough, and then having the kid die before the age of two or you know six months or or five years is fundamental. Re and then and then you have here I am in a in a hunter gatherer society, and suddenly the valley where we expected to find you know the herds of deer uh, didn't work out, and. They aren't there this year. There's been a drought. There's been this. Uh, the, the Paleolithic people 
kept dying out in you know over the course of you know it's kind of again it's kind of a game model but how do you keep the numbers so low for so long the only way to explain it is that you just had extinctions that local extinctions of population that had the people that filled in filled in the spaces and then they died out and more people so the population remained extremely low not because they were being stewardship they were trying like the dickens to reproduce themselves and to stay alive and eat everything in sight but then they died from a terrible winter or some kind of horrible soil-based uh, biotic went racing through the band and killed everybody you know, little, little Ebola events that it would have burned through a, a band and, and wipe it out. So, you know, I mean, keep in mind, we have a life expectancy, which has just fallen, but we have a life expectancy that mm-hmm. is in the 70s, we'll say. The turn of the century, life expectancy was in the 40s. And you go back and in the, I was just looking at the bone analysis for a black death and routine, routine cemeteries in uh the, the average age of adult death was in between 28 and 36. Well, that's the black death. When, no, that's the, yeah, that's the black death. I was a little younger. The routine the routine mortality was in the, you know, the average age of death was about 36. So, well, the guy that had the podcast who lived among the Tsumane, uh-huh. Michael Gervin, uh-huh. he wrote a paper that the if you go far enough back, people lived into their 70s. I mean, there's a lot of infant mortality, yes. <laughs> just minor detail. Right. So that so life expectancy was, yes. I mean, the reality is that if you could survive, and particularly if you're a man, if you could survive until you're about 17 or 18 and then get through the violence of the next 30 years, you might end up being quite, you know, an ancient. You know, you'd be up to your 50s and 60s. But very, very few people got there. Well, it feels like what we're doing now is is not extending human life, but revealing its potential in the first place. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and there's something else I was going to get to, but but we're I, this is really incredibly fascinating to me, as you could probably tell. And there's this whole other aspect that I hope maybe it's time to wrap up this call, but that you work on. The United States yeah, yeah. would it be from the pre-Civil War or what? Basically, my official career, my licensed historian's career, as against my uh, global history uh, uh, interloping, is yeah, early American history. I taught you know basically from origins 1492 to 1867. and I've written a lot of um, a lot of that. From the longer period, but specifically, you know, from the middle of the 1700s to the Civil War, just before the revolution to the Civil War. So I, you know, I was like, I had an email half written to you, and then I, I, I for some reason, I looked you up a bit more, and I was like, oh wait, there's this whole other thing. <laughs> would you be, would you be game to come back and have a second conversation on that period? Yeah, sure. And there, I'm very interested in partly in how slavery formed in the way they did because abolitionism is such a role model of a movement for me. Right. And then what we can learn from that huge change in culture to potentially changing culture today. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and the two are connected because as you put it, it's, it is pretty darn close though. Actually, you know, just between you, me and the lamppost, 
in the in the what's striking is John Muir, the founder of the American environmental movement, was a draft dodger during the Civil War. <laughs> he ran away, uh, avoided the the carnage, and went off to uh, to commune with the woods, <laughs> which is unfortunate. But uh, but the movement has direct analogs. It goes through the civil rights movement, actually, the modern movement. Well, I hope that after we stop recording, but before we hang up, we can schedule that call because I'm going to be just as interested in that as this. Great. All right, John Brooke, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, me too. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.